Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. I'm Ali Velshi in for Alex tonight. This is the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, or what's left of it anyway. Prior to Russia's invasion last year, Bakhmut was a small, relatively unremarkable city of about 75,000 people. Now it's one of the most important cities in the war. For seven straight months, Ukrainian forces have held Bakhmut while being attacked by Russian forces from three different directions. This is the longest continual battle of the war so far. It's thought to be Europe's deadliest land battle since World War II. Western intelligence agencies estimate that Russia has taken 20 to 30,000 casualties in this little strategically insignificant town of Bakhmut. Ukraine's losses are also suspected to be extremely high. This month, both the Ukrainian military and the Russian mercenary group, the Wagner Group, which has been doing much of the fighting in Bakhmut, both of those groups have been sounding the alarm that they are quite literally running out of bullets. That is what this very literal battle for democracy might come down to. The longest, bloodiest battle at the front of the war that will decide whether Ukraine stays a self-determined democracy or gets stolen by Putin's autocratic Russia could come down to the supply chains for guns and bullets, which means it could come down to alliances. Now, there is new and legitimate worry that China is contemplating tipping the scales here. So far, China has remained on the sidelines, but China's autocratic leader Xi Jinping has been cozying up to Putin. At the same time, when this war started, everybody thought it would be over in three days. We're now 398 days into this war, and Russia still cannot take the little town of Bakhmut. And that is in large part because America and the democracy of the world banded together to support Ukraine, not symbolically, but with guns and drones and bullets and money. So in a lot of ways, the literal fight for democracy in Ukraine will likely be determined by the health of democracies at large. So it's fitting that today President Biden held a a global conference on just that, a summit for democracy. Today, we can say with pride that the democracies of the world are getting stronger, not weaker. Autocracies of the world are getting weaker, not stronger. That's a direct result of all of us, all of us coming together with confidence in ourselves and conviction in our cause. Now, I love President Biden's optimism here, and I desperately want what Biden is saying to be our reality. But I just don't know if it is. Even if you just look at the speakers list for Biden's summit today, it's plain that this is not the case. This is the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He gave a speech at Biden's summit today on the subject. I hope you're sitting down for this of how democracy delivers economic growth and shared prosperity. This is what his country looked like this week. Tens of thousands took to the streets to protest Prime Minister Netanyahu's blatant undemocratic power grab. 
Netanyahu, who is facing multiple charges of corruption himself, is attempting to weaken the independence of the Israeli judicial system and make its judges more subject to political control. In other words, he's trying to erode democracy and to increase his own personal power. Exhibit B. This is the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. He was also a speaker at Biden's summit today, and he is particularly notable because India is, in theory at least, the world's largest democracy, or at least it should be. This is Rahul Gandhi, a member of the Indian Parliament and the most prominent opposition leader in India. He was widely seen as a potential challenger to Prime Minister Modi. Gandhi was just sentenced to two years in prison for the supposed crime of defamation. And that two-year sentence is significant because it's a harsh punishment for a questionable charge, to be sure. But in India, members of parliament who are sentenced to, ironically, at least two years in prison are rendered ineligible for office, which conveniently puts him out of the running for India's national elections, which are scheduled to take place early next year. But it's not just other countries that are struggling to live up to their democratic ideals. There's also us. I would argue that we are dangerously close to having our democracy slip away, but don't take my word for it. This is Judge J. Michael Lutig. May not be a household name, but in conservative legal circles, he's a very big deal. In 2005, he was the top of the shortlist for potential George Bush Supreme Court nominees. By the way, you might know Judge Lutig for his role on January 6th. On the day before January 6th, then-President Trump pushed Vice President Pence repeatedly to try to convince him to use his power in the Senate to overturn the results of the election. That day, Pence's personal lawyer called this judge, Judge Ludig, for help. Ludig quickly wrote up his opinion that the vice president had no power to change the outcome. And he posted it to Twitter. The next day, January 6th, Pence's staff incorporated Judge Ludig's reasoning, citing him by name into a letter announcing that Pence would not try to block the counting of the electoral vote. Judge Michael Ludig is a George H.W. Bush-appointed judge, nearly nominated for the Supreme Court by the younger George Bush, who advised Mike, Mike Pence's legal team on January 6th. Now Judge Ludig is saying this, quote, The institutions of our democracy and law, he says, are under vicious, unsustainable, and unendurable attack from within. With the former president and his Republican Party's determined denial of January 6th, their refusal to acknowledge that the former president lost the 2020 presidential election fair and square, and their promise that the 2024 election will not be, quote, stolen, end quote, from them again, as they maintain it was in 2020, America's democracy and the rule of law are still in constitutional peril, and there is no end to the threat in sight, end quote. We, America, should be the city on a hill inspiring democracy worldwide. The world needs a strong America to fight back the tide of authoritarianism that is sweeping the world right now. But to do that, America needs moral authority. We need to be able to say we are doing the right things at home. How do we achieve that? Joining us now is Timothy Snyder, professor of history at Yale University. He's also the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, the author of The Road to Unfreedom. He's also just returned from a trip to Ukraine. Professor Snyder, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you for being with us tonight. Glad to be with you. There are two intertwining problems, as we've just outlined. There is receding, in, in my opinion, uh, democracy on the global stage. Uh, and then there's receding democracy in America. And right now, Joe Biden's trying to walk that road. He's trying to uh, bolster democracy around the world and, and trying to fight autocracy here in America. 
What's your evaluation of how this is going? Well, uh, first of all, whether or not Mr. Biden is right about who's winning and who's losing, it's definitely right to be trying, right? It's, I think it's a very good thing that he has a democracy summit. I think it's a very good thing that we are trying to value democracy. I think if democracy is going to triumph, it's going to be because people say that it's the better system and then try to show that it's the better system rather than just you know shrugging our shoulders and saying, let the strongest win. I think it's important to note in these examples that you gave earlier, it's democracies under threat, but also things like the rule of law the independent judiciary, or just more broadly, human rights are are in threat. And we have to be able to use that, that kind of language as well. So I think it's very wobbly worldwide, but I think Mr. Biden is doing the right thing by taking a stand on principle. And he's also doing the right thing by supporting the Ukrainians. I mean, Russia invades Ukraine, that is something new and dramatic. It's an, it's an autocracy trying to destroy democracy by force. That doesn't happen every day. And if it's the kind of thing which you can't let go, that's a place where you really do have to say, look, the Ukrainians are taking a risk. They're reminding us that democracy requires taking risks. Let's help them take that risk and maybe take an example from them. Interestingly, though, when Russia invades Ukraine or a country invades another independent country, it's not an abstraction. It's easy to get our head around the fact that, oh, this was a democracy that may cease to be a democracy or may cease to exist as a result of this action. All the other stuff you talk about, the the threats to the rule of law, the threats to an independent judiciary like we're looking at in Israel, that doesn't register always with people as, oh, democracy is under threat because of all of these things, because everybody in Israel, at least the Israelis in Israel, have a vote. There are all sorts of countries where people still vote, including Russia, including Iran, but they're not democracies. Yeah, that's the tricky thing about the 21st century is that everybody claims to be a democracy. You know, Russia claims to be a democracy um, and, you know, in claiming to be a democracy, they they erode, they take the sense, the meaning away from the word. And that's their whole design. They don't have any alternatives. That's their weakness. Our weakness, as you say, is we have trouble defining positively what the things are that make a democracy work. And here, the example of the war in Ukraine is, is clarifying in a different way that one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are doing so well is 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 civil society. It's people's habit of resistance. It's the habit of cooperation that allows the army to do so well. That's a lesson for other societies. Why did why does Netanyahu have to pull back in Israel? Because Israelis are finally getting on the streets in large numbers and making their voices known as a society. Right? Democracy is is not democracy is about muscle. It's about movement. It's about people taking a stand and yeah. being together. If you wait for the institutions to save you, then it's already too late. One always wonders if democracy is a verb as opposed to a noun. Let's talk about China for a second, because China can be influential in where if we're in a wobbly boat about democracy, whether or not we agree with what Joe Biden saying democracies are, are doing better than autocracies in the world. China could have an impact on this right now. Absolutely. I mean, the Chinese are the most important country in the world on that side of things. Russia, Russia, thanks to its 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 poor showing in Ukraine, is more and more dependency on Russia and China. It's a China-Russia block that we're talking about. And at a basic level, what China and Russia have in common is the notion that these Western ideals are just kind of local fantasies. It's things are fundamentally just about power and economic might. Um, you know, so therefore, follow us. We're reliable. We're predictable. And I think what 
democracies have to show in connection to China is A, there are moral reasons to prefer democracy. B, people live better under democracy and prefer it. You know, people are not immigrating to Russia and China for political reasons. It's the other way around. But also C, that we can be more predictable and reliable ourselves. Our constitutional problems at home, the fact that many people around the world, including in Asia, look at us and shrug their shoulders and say, who knows what will happen in 2024? That is a problem, right? The immediate problem that, as the judge said, we could have a second coup attempt um, in two presidential elections. People look at that, you know, concerned about democracy or not, and say, that makes that whole system look unpredictable. So that's that's one more reason why we have to have our own house in order. And Judge Ludig is not a sort of a hair on fire kind of guy. He's a he's actually a He's a conservative. Uh, he's a he's a Republican. He's very, very deeply alarmed that our our situation, our democratic situation in America is at risk. And the difficulty he has, and I think a lot of us have, is and you you write about this endlessly, is how you convince people that that risk is real. Um, it is it is something we're going to actively have to do something about in this world where Donald Trump has proclaimed now for the second time in a month, I am your retribution, is what he tells his followers. That's the language of autocracy. No, it's also the language of fascism. I mean, living in a big lie is 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 being a fascist saying that we i have an alternative truth for you an alternative reality in which you can live saying that uh, politics is all about naming the enemy and taking revenge those are basic that is basically a fascist reality that we're, we're talking about and i think one of the things that people who care about democracy have to be able to do is to remember some of the legacies of the 20th century right when i look at florida i have to say I, what i think about is communism you know the the, the book the book bans and the public gatherings and the singling out of authors and the denunciations. Like, it's funny, like all this stuff is supposed to be anti-communist, but as a historian of communism, like that reminds me of some of the basic things that were wrong about communism, those denunciations and the, and the book bannings and getting people all rallied up about authors who are supposedly contaminating other people. So we have to be, I think we have to be ready to, you know, to name some names and to describe some practices, but also be able to say positively in a democracy, we don't do those things, but we do other things. And the other things that we do are actually better and make for a better sort of life. You know, you write about this and you're you're an esteemed professor and, and expert on this. Last weekend, I spoke to a woman in Florida who uh, spoke at a school board meeting about this book banning. Her name is Grace Lynn. She's 100 years old. Her husband died in World War II at the age of 27, uh, fighting for the United States. And she's 100 and she's fighting book bans. And it makes the reason I bring this up to you is to say, what do the rest of us who are not professors of this do in this fight? What is the way you become a foot soldier for democracy when it's under threat in America in 2023? You run for office yourself. Um, you tell the truth about basic things. You make sure you're talking to people who don't agree with you at least once and smile and give it a shot. You you pay money to subscribe to local journalism if it still exists. You pay money to subscribe to national journalism. Um, you, you, uh, you, you join some kind of group because if you join a group, you can feel better about yourself over the long run. You remember that it's the little things and the medium-sized things that count and you don't shake your head if you don't seem to be winning at a global level or a national level because none of us can do that alone. You take examples from people in Ukraine or in your own city or elsewhere who are, who are taking risks and you, you encourage those people. There's so many little things that we can do. And the interesting thing is that when we do the little things, we end up feeling better about the big things. I mean, the, the world is like the world's like you say, it's looking tough. But how it looks to us every every morning depends a little bit on what we did ourselves the day before. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point you make, because if we lean into some of these things that you that what a remarkable list, by the way, um, that you just listed about things that individuals can do when and if they feel powerless. Sometimes the problem is the result doesn't seem to be bearing uh, out in the short term, particularly in elections, because you can work as hard as you do. And you might see two election cycles go by where it doesn't look like things are getting better. But in fact, as a as a professor of history, what you look back at is you realize that people who planted certain seeds, th- th- those those seeds did not come to fruition until, in some cases, years or decades later. Almost everybody who is remembered now as a hero of human rights or of democracy failed most of the time, right? Most people, you know, most people who are remembered as heroes of democracy or as revolutionaries failed most of the time, and then finally they succeed. The conjuncture is right, um, and they and they're important for us, not so much because of their success ultimately, but because of their example that they stuck it out. Yep. that they had principles they could articulate, that they stayed with it. So uh, you're making a great point. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's uh, actually heartening to uh, hear from you on this topic. I was a little less optimistic when I introduced you. Timothy Snyder is a professor of history at Yale University. He's a very important author uh, of books like On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century and The Road to Unfreedom. Professor Snyder, thank you so much for the conversation tonight. Well, we've got lots more to get to tonight. Coming up, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says a bunch of military promotions up before the Senate are absolutely critical for U.S. military readiness. So why is one Republican senator dead set on blocking them? But first, a Manhattan grand jury weighing an indictment that Donald Trump falsely claimed would lead to his arrest last week. Well, that grand jury may now be going on hiatus. What this could mean for the investigation is next. Stay with us. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Donald Trump should have been arrested eight days ago. That's not according to us. That's according to this post from the former president telling the world almost two weeks ago that the Manhattan DA's office was ready to arrest him in relation to the hush money payment that his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, made to the adult actress Stormy Daniels in the wake of the 2016 election. And while Donald Trump isn't the most reliable of sources, a lot of people did think something was about to happen because days earlier, The Manhattan DA's office had invited Trump to testify before the special grand jury overseeing his case, which is usually a pretty strong signal that charges are about to be brought. Now, since that moment, the entire country's been on indictment watch, and with good reason. 
Because if Trump is charged, he would become the first former president ever indicted in American history. And Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, guy on the right, would become the first prosecutor to indict a former president. Stakes are huge. To make things even more intriguing, today we got reports that the grand jury investigating Trump in Manhattan will break for most of the month of April. Quote, the Manhattan grand jury examining Donald Trump's alleged role in a hush money payment to a porn star isn't expected to hear evidence in the case for the next month, largely due to a previously scheduled hiatus, according to a person familiar with the proceedings. End quote. The break, by the way, that continues, the break would push any indictment of the former president to late April at the earliest. All right, we don't know if that's necessarily true because the Manhattan DA's office can still use the grand jury when it meets tomorrow or Monday or Wednesday of next week. But it does make you wonder what is going on. Will Trump get indicted or did the case go cold? Your guess is as good as mine, but there are some really good theories out there pointing to some plausible explanations. As one former federal prosecutor writes, quote, Michael Cohen has said at least two things in recent interviews that would ordinarily raise red flags for prosecutors working with an important cooperating witness. Now, this is potentially a big concern because despite being the main witness against Trump in the case, Cohen is not shy about talking about the case. And Trump's defense will surely use every single statement he has made if it serves them to. OK, so that's one theory. Here's another quote. The Manhattan grand jury that has been weighing potential hush money charges against Donald Trump could have voted Monday. We just wouldn't know it yet, former prosecutors told Insider. And if they've already voted to indict, the district attorney's office does not need to file the indictment immediately. End quote. We're not so sure about this one, but deliberations of the grand jury are secret. So, again, who knows? OK, that's two theories. There's a third theory out there that I personally think has some traction, and it's got to do with Alan Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's former chief financial officer, who's currently serving a five-month sentence at Rikers after pleading guilty to unrelated tax fraud charges. This is from the New York Times last month. Quote, Manhattan prosecutors this week warned that they might file new fraud charges against Alan Weisselberg, a longtime top executive at Donald Trump's real estate business, increasing pressure on Weisselberg to cooperate in a broader investigation into the former president. End quote. Weisselberg's an interesting story. He was one of Donald Trump's closest confidants all his life. He's due to get out of jail next month. So if someone's trying to pressure him to testify against Trump, now's the time. Our colleagues at WNBC have also confirmed tonight that Weisselberg's attorneys, Nick Gravante and Mary Mulligan, who were being paid for by the Trump Organization to represent Weisselberg, are no longer representing him. It's a big deal, one that could potentially explain the delay. All right, a lot of questions here for a guy who knows nothing about the law. Joining us now is Karen Agnifilo, former chief assistant district attorney uh, for the former Manhattanist uh, district attorney, Cy Vance. Karen, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to my postulating on things that I know nothing about. You tell me what you think is going on. I think it's possible. All of those things are possible, right? So for sure, the grand jury is going on a hiatus because a long-term grand jury, when you ask people to sit for six months, a year, whatever they've been called to sit for, they pre-plan out whatever the schedule is going to be. And with the public schools being out on break, you can't, you don't want to lose grand jurors. So you typically take those holidays off, including Passover, Easter, et cetera. So there are two days left in this before before they go on hiatus, which is uh, tomorrow, Thursday and Monday. And it's very possible that 
when when that statement that you read that said they're not going to hear evidence, it's possible they're not going to hear evidence, but they need to be charged on the law and vote. And that could happen. We may or may not know about it if it did for the same reason that we may or may not know if they voted on Monday, because it is a secret proceeding and you don't have to file it right away. So so those things are possible. But but I, I'm very intrigued by the fact that Alan Weisselberg uh, no longer is being represented by those lawyers. Tell me what that means, because that is interesting. It, 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 we, 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 we work to confirm this through the course of the day. These are the two lawyers who have represented him through this case. And he's a remarkable story because this is a guy who at his advanced age, decided he was going to go to jail yeah. and not cooperate. In, in you know, I'm, I'm sure they gave him all sorts of options to not go to jail, and he, he's in jail now. So tell me what this means that his lawyers are not representing him. It could mean one of two things. Number one, the case is over. And doesn't need the lawyers. Doesn't anymore. need the lawyers anymore. Right. They were just representing him on that one case. Or more likely, I think, is there was this pressure campaign put on him saying, while he's in Rikers, you know, do you like being there? Because we're about to right. bring other charges. And if he testified in the grand jury, you wouldn't necessarily know it because he'd be brought in through the back door because he's incarcerated. Right. So just unlike the other people who either like Michael Cohen, who tells people that he testified, or Bob Costello, who tells people that he testified. Other witnesses, we know about them because we see them going in and out of the building. You wouldn't necessarily see Alan Weisselberg. So it's possible he's already testified. We just don't know. Now, he probably wouldn't. He'd have a lawyer of some sort, right? Would we know about that? No, we would not know about that necessarily. Uh, if he didn't tell us. So exactly. Right. Because it's all secret. But it is it is interesting that those lawyers rep that were paid for by the Trump organization, if he is cooperating, that would make sense why the Trump organization is no longer going to pay for his lawyers. Now, two weeks ago, when Donald Trump said he was going to be arrested again, this is in, in our business. We usually like two sources, but Donald Trump's the former president of the United States, and he put it out there. And of course, everybody started wondering about whether he was going to be indicted. Is there a possibility that there was nothing to that at the time? I think I think what he he does what he always does, right? He says things either to bait people, and I think he was trying to bait the DA's office into telling him what was going on or to make a public statement. He says things to incite people, right? And that could have been a way to protest. You know, didn't he say protest, protest, protest? Yeah, take, and back, the, take the nation Yeah, back, and yeah. then he said about um, death and destruction, et yeah. cetera. And so I think there were several reasons why he said that. The reason I think it came up was because he was offered an opportunity to testify in the grand jury, which means it's the end of the case, which means it's likely that he is going to get arrested at some point quickly if they vote to indict. And so he was he, he was a panicking, I think, because he's about to be arrested. And so he just says stuff like like he does every day. Right. And then, you know, it turns out to not be true. So it could be that the case was not ready uh, for an indictment well, because they ended up calling other witnesses. They had more Michael Cohen. They had uh, somebody to rebut Michael Cohen's testimony. Then they brought David Pecker back to, you know, like it, it, it seems like they're hearing stuff they've heard before, but something is raising questions for the grand jury. Yeah, well, so a grand jury presentation is usually very, very straightforward and bare bones, right? It's There's no opening, there's no closing or summation, there's no cross-examination of witnesses. It's a lot of fact. It's a lot of just, just facts, and it's just, it is, these are the facts, yeah. just the facts. But, what, but when you give a defendant, like you did Donald Trump, the opportunity to testify, he said no, but he said, I want you to hear from one of my witnesses. Right. It turns it into a mini trial. Right, right? which is not what they're 
designed to be. Well, so, they're not, but this is this does happen. Right. So it turns into a little bit of a mini trial. And so obviously Robert Costello said things that caused the prosecutor to say, I'm going to now rebut that with Pecker and potentially other witnesses and documents and records. We just don't know. But there was some question about, does Alvin Bragg have cold feet? Mm-hmm. And is he no longer going to do this? If that were the case, he wouldn't put rebuttal evidence in. I don't think he wouldn't try to rebut what Trump was saying. And let me ask you this, because I've had the same answer from every lawyer, so I don't know that it'll change every prosecutor. That uh, image that Donald Trump had with a baseball bat and Alvin Bragg uh, actually came down very little. Does Donald Trump rarely deletes anything, but he took this post down and we're thinking his lawyers must have told him that's actually a step too far. Prosecutors tell me it's quite rare to get an actual threat or, you know, a, a material threat like that. Yeah, that it is rare, but he definitely crossed a line. I mean, he could be prosecuted for that. That coupled with calling for death and destruction. Right. And, and he I think he he clearly crossed a line that if if they wanted to prosecute him, it unfortunately is just a misdemeanor. Right. But if they wanted if the DA's office wanted to prosecute him for that, he absolutely crossed a line, which is why he's walked it back. And he went on TV saying they put it there. I, right. you know, whatever. Just re- reposted whoever it. they are, whoever they are, and yeah. So he's wa- he's clearly walking it back, and and even this morning when he posted on Truth Social, he he was talking to the grand jury, saying how fair-minded and wonderful they are, and the good grand jurors, and and it's a witch hunt. He's talking to them because he knows he crossed a line there, right. threatening them, and now he's trying to convince them to not indict him. Karen, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Karen Agnifilo uh, is a former district attorney for the uh, former Manhattan district attorney, former. I think I got that wrong, but everybody sort of gets what you did. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Got her name right, but I got her title wrong. All right. Still ahead tonight, Republicans continue to put laws at the state level on two major policy issues, despite the fact that polls show they resoundingly favor Democrats. So what are they and what are Democrats going to do about it? Claire McCaskill joins me live to discuss next. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There are a number of things uh, happening globally that indicate that we could be uh, in a contest on any one given day. Uh, not uh, approving the, uh, the, the recommendation for promotions actually uh, creates a ripple effect through the force that makes us uh, far less ready than, than we need to be. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin yesterday warning senators on the Armed Services Committee that something Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is doing could have disastrous consequences for national security. Senator Tuberville is currently unilaterally blocking the promotion of dozens of military officers. As many as 160 officers are affected at the moment and hundreds more 
including admirals and three and four star generals, will need confirmation by the end of the year. Now, some of these officers are slated to taking over strategic roles like commanding naval forces in the Pacific and Middle East and working as a Pentagon liaison to NATO's military committee. Usually this massive amount of promotions are approved in groups by unanimous consent. But Senator Tuberville's maneuver means that for him to get or for it to get past him, the promotions would have to be approved one by one, which could take weeks. And if you're wondering what would make the senator decide to put a wrench in the deployment of officers and to risk the U.S. military's readiness, here is his explanation. As of 12 days ago, y'all got the, the American taxpayer on the hook to pay for travel and time off for elective abortions. And you did not make this with anybody in this room or Congress taking a vote. I'm not going to let our military be politicized. I'm not going to let our military be politicized by holding up promotions because you don't like what they're doing. What Senator Tuberville is referring to is a new Department of Defense policy that allows service members and their family members reimbursement for travel expenses and up to three weeks of leave if they travel out of state for reproductive care, including abortions, because abortions are reproductive care. It clarifies a memo from Secretary Austin last year after the fall of Roe directing all branches of the military to ensure that members could get access to abortions. Senator Tuberville's claims that this policy violates the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of federal funds for abortion. The policy clearly states that it does not. There are military installations in at least 14 states that have banned or mostly banned abortion, and more than 230,000 service members and their families live in those states. The Pentagon's new policy is reducing barriers and helping these members and their eligible family members to get the reproductive health care they need, regardless of where they're stationed. Let's not miss the irony here. Senator Tuberville says he's not going to let the U.S. military be politicized. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing by holding up military confirmations over his views on abortion. And when it comes to the politics of abortion, Senator Tuberville may think that he's on solid ground, but that ground is shifting. And we are going to have much more on what that means for Democrats and democracy. Just ahead. Stay with us. Tomorrow in Florida, the Republican-controlled state Senate will take up a bill that would ban nearly all abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, before many people even know they are pregnant. The bill has exceptions for rape and incest, but only up to 15 weeks of pregnancy. In Idaho, Republicans in the House just passed a bill restricting the ability to travel out of state for abortions. The bill makes something called abortion trafficking, helping a minor travel for an abortion, a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. In North Carolina today, House Republicans introduced a total abortion ban from the moment of fertilization. Meanwhile, also in North Carolina, the Republican majority legislature just voted to override the Democratic governor's veto of a new law that eliminates background checks for handguns, eliminates background checks for handguns. Because why would you want those? In Nebraska last night, Republican lawmakers advanced a bill that would allow gun owners to carry a concealed gun in public without a permit. That bill is now one step away from making it to the governor's desk for approval. In Tennessee, where three adults and three little kids were just shot dead at an elementary school, lawmakers there had been advancing legislation that would lower the minimum age for carrying guns from 21 to 18. They put it on pause for a little bit, but it will almost certainly come back. 
Now, if that list of state actions on abortion and guns seems daunting to you, you're not alone. Republicans across the country keep doubling and tripling down on restricting abortion and loosening access to guns, even though their constituents want the opposite. If you want to know how Americans feel about abortion, take a look at this. In Florida and North Carolina, more than 60 percent of residents say they want abortions to be legal. That holds true for other red states as well. And when it comes to guns, Republicans seem to be in for a reckoning in the near future. A new Harvard Institute of Politics poll found that 63 percent of Americans aged 18 to 29 support stricter gun laws. When it comes to this never-ending argument about gun reform and abortion, Democrats appear to be on the winning side. They've got the support of the American people to get something done. So how do they either get Republicans on their side or out of the way at this point? How do they use the mandate to move the needle? Well, Rebecca Traister, the writer for New York York Magazine and The Cut, has an idea. Just seize the political opportunity. Make battles like abortion rights and gun reform the centerpiece of the Democratic Party's 2024 agenda. Let's talk about that with Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator from Missouri. Claire, uh, good to see you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks, Allie. Look, there is this constant tension amongst uh, Democrats about whether they should lean into things like this or lean away from them. Right, right prior to the midterms, lots of people were saying lean into the policy uh, uh, things that, that Biden's done, lean into the fight against inflation, lean into kitchen, ta- kitchen table issues. W- what do you make of Rebecca Traister's argument that, that lean into this because with respect to common sense gun laws and abortion, the numbers, are, the, the numbers favor Democrats? Well, certainly extreme positions lose elections. Um, Most of America is closer to the middle than they are to the ends of the spectrum on issues, particularly ones that are people feel passionately about. So what's happened is the Republicans have gotten into gerrymandered districts and into areas and sometimes whole states that are so Republican, they keep trying to go further and further and further to the right in order to avoid a primary that might cause them a problem. And in doing so, they are making our elections for Democrats much easier. My state is a great example. Now, keep in mind that when I lost my election in 2018, we had the majority of statewide office holders were Democrats in Missouri. Today, abortion is illegal from the moment of conception, no exceptions for rape or incest. The Missouri legislature, the Republicans just voted in block to allow children of any age to carry weapons of war publicly on the streets of our state. So it has gotten so extreme that now it's time for us to talk about these extreme positions and make them the centerpiece, make them our cultural wars. Let me ask you about that, because when you say a lot of these Republicans take stake out these extreme positions because of the fear of being primaried, there's always a fear of being primaried. It, it grew into a fear of being primaried on the right. But in on these two issues, which which if Rebecca Traister, uh, if her argument holds that they become centerpieces for Republicans, there is a lot of money that comes from anti-abortion groups and a lot of money that comes from the NRA. It's, it's a protection racket, basically, for for uh, for elected politicians. That's a lot to overcome. It's not a matter of asking Republicans to moderate their positions. It's, it's asking them to possibly give up their seat. Uh, listen, uh, there's no question that there's money on these issues, uh, especially on the extreme positions and both guns and abortion. But one thing 
thing that's happened to Allie that didn't used to be the case is there are lots of folks out there that give five, ten, twenty dollars. And if I had to bet right now, I would bet the women of America are ready to give serious money, maybe only in twenty dollar increments, but serious money to any candidate in a general election who says, you know, I'm tired of our children getting slaughtered. If we can manage to put our children in car seats because the data shows it saves lives, we ought to be able to manage to get weapons of war that were designed for only one thing, Mm -hmm. to kill as many human beings as quickly as possible. We ought to be able to manage to get them off the streets entirely. And I believe that issue in most districts in America would be a winning issue in a general election. I'm not sure that that you can survive a Republican primary right now because the extreme wing of the Republican Party is ascending. They are in control. But I think in general elections, somebody who takes these issues to heart and campaigns on them with passion, I think it's a winner for people who believe we've gone way too far on both these subjects. Well, Claire, you're always great to have on these topics. But in this particular case, I wanted to speak to you because of your own history um, in a state like Missouri. Let's let's look at this last midterm election in places where Republicans staked out extreme positions in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, in in Michigan. And and Democrats were victorious. The the, the example in Michigan most intrigues me on this because uh, the the abortion matter was a, a ballot measure. It was front and center for a lot of Democrats. The gun issue is very, very big in Michigan. And the Democrats swept that. Gretchen Whitmer at the top of the ticket. I'm intrigued by that. Uh, how much of that was Gretchen Whitmer as blueprint for what Rebecca Traister is talking about? And how much of that is that the Democrats in Michigan were running against some pretty extreme Republicans? I think there's a little of both. Uh, I want to give uh, is it, they like to call her Gretch, the credit. Um, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is strong and passionate and is a wonderful role model for women everywhere who want to lead on these subjects. But also the Republican Party in Michigan is a good example of where they really embrace the far right extreme and all of the militia action up there and even her being threatened by kidnapping. Mm-hmm. All of that played into the hands of most Michigan voters who want to be somewhere where we can see the middle. Not necessarily. I mean, it's fine to have really progressive values, but most people want there to be some normalcy and they do not want extreme. So when Republicans keep nominating very extreme people and you combine that with a passionate, strong leader on issues like individual freedom when it comes to deciding what to do with your Mm -hmm. own body, then you have a winning combination. And she didn't have quite as much ground to overcome as you might in states like, for example, where John Tester has to run in Montana or Mm -hmm. Sherrod Brown has to run in Ohio. But um, she still did a great job, as did the rest of the ticket, pointing out how extreme and unacceptable the other side was. Uh, We could go on for a very long time about this conversation, and I actually hope we do, because I'm learning a lot from you, as I always do. Claire, good to see you, as always. Thank you. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight, how one tiny South Pacific Island nation's victory at the U.N. today is set to make a gigantic impact on global climate justice. That's coming up next. The Assembly decides to adopt draft resolution A-77-58. It is so decided.
right, that was a scene at the United Nations General Assembly today. If the dry-sounding language didn't clue you in that something big was happening, maybe the vigorous applause after the gavel went down and the people in the audience taking cell phone videos during what they clearly considered to be an historic moment might. Because what happened today was spearheaded by the tiny South Pacific nation of Vanuatu, population 320,000 spread out across an archipelago comprised of about 83 islands. For Vanuatu, climate change is no longer theoretical. They are increasingly being pounded by cyclones while also planning to relocate dozens of villages away from coastal areas within the next two years because of severe sea level rise. Today, Vanuatu got 193 member states of the United Nations to all agree on something. No dissent. The thing they agreed on was to kick the usual well-intentioned but toothless conversations around climate change up a notch by getting the entire assembled world body to agree to ask the International Court of Justice in The Hague for a ruling on who bears responsibility for the destructive effects of climate change and what nations that are literally drowning can force the biggest carbon emitters to do. Obviously, this is one small step in what will still prove to be a much longer journey than it should be. But take the wins while you still can. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you again here tomorrow. Reminder, you can also catch me on weekends at 10 a.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launched vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com.